0: An atheist was uh, giving a lecture telling people why he didn't believe in God. And throughout the speech, he was berating Christians, telling them that they were believing in something that was not true. Well, when he finished with his lecture, he asked the audience, are there any questions? A man raised his hand and then he made his way up to the platform. He stood there quietly and he pulled an orange out of his coat pocket. And very slowly, the man began to peel the orange and then he ate it without saying a word. Well, at first, the atheist was puzzled by all this, thinking to himself, what in the world is this guy up to? (laughs) But after watching him for a while, the atheist got agitated, and he said, are you going to stand here all night wasting our time, or are you going to actually ask me a question? When the man finished with the orange, he turned to the atheist, and he said, that orange I just ate, was it sweet, or was it sour? (laughs) And the atheist said, how do I know? I never tasted it. And the man said, exactly. And how can you know anything about Jesus if you've never tried him? There are a lot of us, there are a lot of us who talk about Jesus, but do we know him? You know, there's many religious people who've been coming to church all their lives and they know a lot of facts about Jesus. They know he was born in Bethlehem. They know he died on a cross. They know that on one occasion, he fed more than 5,000 people just by using a, a little boy's lunch. They know all kinds of interesting things about Jesus, but do they know him? I mean, they know a lot about him, but do they actually know him as a friend? Do you understand the difference? Uh, there may be a certain celebrity that you really admire. You've watched every one of their movies. And you know all kinds of information about this person because you've read about them on the internet. You know where they live. You know who they're dating right now. You even know what their favorite food is. But though you know a lot of facts about this person, you cannot honestly say they're one of your friends. You can't actually say you're close to that person. Oh sure, on one occasion you actually met this person and, and you got their autograph and that was a big deal. But over the years, you've not spent any significant time with them, talking, carrying on some deep conversations, laughing, crying, spilling your guts, giving advice to each other, sharing your hearts, holding each other up as together you walk through some painful experiences. You've never done any of that with them. You know them as a celebrity, but you don't know them as a friend. Now, you contrast that with this. When my son and my daughter were young, just ages two and four, they didn't know a lot about me. I mean, at that point in their lives, if you'd pulled them aside and you started to quiz them, hey, I know your dad's a preacher, but what kind of work does a preacher do? Or how old is your father? Where did he go to college? They would have been silent, unable to answer any of those questions. But though they, they at the ages of two and four, though they couldn't have told you a lot about me, yet the trust and the love that we shared at that moment was something deep and profound. Even at that young age, at that moment in time, they knew their dad in a very intimate way. And why? Because of all the experiences we've been through together. Cuddling on the couch, playing on the floor, wiping away tears, reading stories together at bedtime. Even in those moments when I had to discipline them, even then they were learning something about me. They were learning something about my heart and why I cared so much about them. So long before my son and my daughter ever knew how to tie their shoes or ride a bike, they knew their dad. And they knew me well. Why? Because we'd spent a lot of time together. Do you know Jesus? And do you know him well? Is there a trust and bond between the two of you that is deep and strong? Do you have this hope that even when you're going through tough times, I may not know much about this trial that I'm going through right now, but here's what I do know. He will be there for me. That's the confidence the Apostle Paul has here in Acts chapter 27. You know, I've always wondered when I read through this, I've always wondered why Luke, the man who wrote the book of Acts, why he took an entire chapter like he does here, Acts 27. He takes an entire chapter just to tell us about this trip that Paul is taking. I mean, you've got 44 verses here in this chapter, and Luke goes into great detail telling us what kind of boat Paul's on and what the wind and weather conditions are like and what kind of islands he's passing by as he's traveling to the city of Rome. I mean, here's Paul taking a cruise across the Mediterranean Sea, and I'm thinking, why do we need to know about this? Why is the Bible taking so much time and using so much space just to tell us about a boat ride? Here's why. There are 276 people on this ship. And other than Luke and Aristarchus, the two friends of the Apostle Paul, Luke, Aristarchus, and Paul, they're the only three Christians on board. So when a storm comes, and it's a really bad storm, verse 14 will tell us it's like a, a hurricane, God wants all these other people to be able to see, hey, does knowing Jesus make a difference when you go through a storm? And the answer is yes, yes. So I want us to take a look at this today. Now, before I start to read, I want to give you a little background. When you get to Acts chapter 27, by this point in time, the Apostle Paul has been following Jesus for about 25 to 30 years. And during that time, he's, he's made at least 11 different trips across the Mediterranean Sea. He's, he's ridden on all kinds of boats. He's traveled more than 3,000 miles across this mighty body of water. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he'll tell us on three of those occasions, he was involved in a shipwreck. In fact, one time he says he spent the whole night and the whole day just floating out in the water before somebody finally came along to rescue him. So this guy knows from personal experience how dangerous the Mediterranean Sea can be. He knows the risks that you're taking back in that first century world anytime you get on a ship. So you get to Acts chapter 27, and here is God for the 12th time putting Paul on a boat. And Paul's got to be thinking to himself, (laughs) again? (laughs) But this time he knows this. This time he has this assurance. Way back in Acts chapter 23, God said, Paul, I want you to go to Rome. I want you to stand trial before Caesar. I want you to witness to that man. Now, normally, in the first century world, when you made a trip like this, you're traveling all the way from Israel to Italy, and you're doing this by ship. Normally, under good conditions, a trip like this will take you about a month, four to five weeks. But this particular trip is gonna take, it's gonna be six months before Paul ever makes it to Rome. Why? Because God has another mission in mind. Hey, Paul, before you get to Caesar, Before you talk to that man, there's some other people I want you to help. There are going to be 273 other people on this ship who don't know anything at all about Jesus. So, Paul, over the next six months, I want them to spend some time with you. Some significant time where, under all different kinds of situations, they're going to have a chance to see up close and personal how your faith in Jesus makes a difference for you. So, First 12 verses of this chapter, the trip gets started. The ship leaves Israel. It's headed off for Italy. But right off the bat, there's all kinds of detours and delays. I mean, there's just one frustration after another. So, by the time you get to verse 13, they have finally made it to the island of Crete, which is not very far. They should have been much further along. But finally, in verse 13, they seem to catch a break. One day, it's a beautiful day. The sun is shining. There's a gentle breeze blowing. It seems to be a perfect opportunity to raise the sails and make some headway. And so, they begin to leave. But they're not gone very long, verse 14. They're not gone very long when that gentle breeze turns into a hurricane. And like a feather in a wind tunnel, this this ship is now being blown way off course. And from this point on, this trip just goes from bad to worse. So, we pick up the encounter in verse 18. Look at this with me. It says, we, that would be Luke, Aristarchus, and Paul, the three Christians on, on board this ship. And this has not been a pleasant experience for them either. Man, this has been rough. Notice how he describes it. We took not just a battering, such a violent battering. I mean, just constant, day and night, and day after day, a violent battering from this storm. So that the next day, they, the leaders of the trip, began to throw the cargo overboard. They're starting to give up hope, they're throwing away the money. This is the main reason why most of the people are on this boat. They're there to get that cargo to Rome where they can make this huge profit. But now the profit, I mean financially now it's all a disaster. It's gone. Imagine the disappointment. But it only gets worse. Verse 19. On the third day since they've left the island of Crete, now they throw the ship's tackle. All the equipment they use to navigate the, the ship. See, they're doing everything they can to lighten the load. They're doing everything they can to keep the boat above water. And yet in spite of all they do, things just keep getting worse. Verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. Now they're out here. They've been out here 10, 11 days by this point. And, and, and each, there's nothing up there. I mean, this is in the days before the invention of the compass. So if there's no lights in the sky, there's no way to get their bearing. I mean, they're riding blind. They have no idea where they are. They have no idea where they're going. The only thing they know at this point in time is the storm won't let up. It says, and the storm continued raging. And so finally, they just throw up their hands in despair and says, and we gave up all hope of being saved. I get that. I mean, you think about this every day, every night, the waves crashing over the ship. Everybody on board just soaked and chilled to the bone, desperately fatigued. Over the past week, week and a half, they've all been seasick and vomiting all the time. Hey, under those kind of conditions, I can understand where somebody says, I can't take it anymore. I've lost hope. Well, there's one person on the boat that hasn't lost hope. And he is about to tell everybody why. <laughs> you know, a number of years ago I was sitting in a doctor's office uh, waiting for my appointment and I picked up this magazine called Good Housekeeping. There was an article on the cover that kind of intrigued me. It said six guidelines for finding a good husband. It was written by Lois Weiss. Through the years she wrote a lot of articles for this magazine. And so it kind of intrigued me. I opened it up and I read and I thought she's got a pretty good list. You know, here's six ways to find out about this man you're thinking about marrying. Is he a good man? Is he the right man for you? Do you know for sure what kind of man he really is? Do you know that you can trust him? Well, here are six ways to find an answer to that question. Here are six things to watch for. Here was her list. Number one, watch him drive in heavy traffic. Number two, play tennis with him. Number three, listen to how he talks to his mother when he doesn't know you're listening. Number four, see how he responds to those who serve him. How does he treat the waiters, ushers, maids? Number five, notice how he spends his money, for whom he spends his money. And number six, look at his friends. Who does he like to hang out with? Now the common thread in all these items is this, how does he treat other people? Is he kind or is he rude? Is he thoughtful or insensitive? Does he treat others with respect or does he act all the time like the world owes him a living? Listen, any guy knows how to put on a front, a good front when he knows he's being watched. But you check out this guy in these six different areas of life when he doesn't know he's being watched, and you're going to learn a lot about him because the way we treat other people says something about who we really are. Well, what if somebody gave us that test as a Christian? Hey, has knowing Jesus made a difference for you? Oh, yeah, I'm religious. I come to church every Sunday. I, I read my Bible every day. I can quote scripture with the best of them. Well, that's fine. But has knowing Jesus made a difference in how you treat people? I mean, how do you treat your wife when you come home from work after a bad day at work? Or how do you get along with the people there on the job site, especially when you're under the gun, you're feeling the pressure to get things done? How would they describe you? Harsh, tough, critical, judgmental, ill-tempered, impatient? See, it doesn't matter how many programs, how many activities you attend here in church. If you're still being arrogant and rude to the people out there in the road, you're still being arrogant and rude to the people who are trying to serve you there in the restaurant, if you're still being arrogant and rude to the people who live with you there in their home, then obviously knowing Jesus has not really changed your life. To me, what is so amazing about this passage of Scripture, here in Acts 27, here in a moment of extreme danger and stress, here in a moment of utter despair, we get a chance to see, does the Apostle Paul really believe what he preaches? Has knowing Jesus made a difference for him? And the answer is yes. Listen to his testimony, verse 21. After they'd gone a long time, it's almost two weeks now, they've been out here in the open water, midst of this dark storm, after they'd gone a long time without food, Paul stands up because he wants to encourage, he wants to help. So he says, men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete, then you would have spared yourselves this damaged and loss." The first time you hear that, that sounds a little bit arrogant, I don't think that's his tone. See, way back in verse 10, when they're still on the island of Crete, Paul had strongly urged the leaders of the trip, don't, don't leave. Let's just stay here in the island. If we leave, we're going to get in trouble. Let's just stay. And they ignored him because they were in such a hurry to get their cargo to Rome. They were in such a hurry to make money. They were more concerned about making money than there were the people on the ship. But this is not Paul standing up and saying, hey, I told you so. I was right. You were wrong. But you wouldn't listen. No. I think what Paul's trying to emphasize, hey, at every stage in this long journey, it's been a long trip, hasn't it? It's been long for all of us. But at every stage, I've been concerned about the people on this boat, and I want things to go well for them. I mean, all along the way, you've seen my heart, right? Well, hear my heart again. Verse 22, he says, I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you is going to be lost. The ship will go down. You won't. Now you're thinking, how does he know that? Well, verse 23, he's been praying says, so last night an angel, and I love the way he describes himself, Paul knows his identity, who he is, whose he is. An angel of the God to whom I belong. If I belong to God, I know he's going to take care of me. An angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, that angel, that messenger from God, come and stood beside me. And he says, do not be afraid, Paul. Now get that. Why does he need to say that to Paul? Because Paul's felt the fear. He's felt that sense of despair. He's human. This has not been an easy trip for him either. He needs some encouragement. But when he receives this encouragement from the Lord, now he is eager to share that encouragement with others too. Because notice two things the angel says, one for Paul, one for the passengers of the boat. The angel said to him that night, Paul, you must stand trial before Caesar. Meaning, you're gonna make it to Rome. I know right now, it doesn't look like it, does it? But you will, you're gonna get there. God's gonna help. And Paul, God's not just gonna help you, He's going to help everybody else on this boat. It says, and God has graciously given you. Given you, meaning somebody's been asking for something. Somebody's been praying. And that somebody is Paul. God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. God's heard the prayers. Over the past two weeks, Paul's been praying. And he's been praying really hard. Praying not just for himself, but praying for everybody in this boat. And now God lets him know, I've heard you. They're going to be saved. The ship will go down, but they won't. Everybody here will be saved. So verse 25, he gets up and he says, keep up your courage. And here's the key phrase in the entire chapter. This is what this whole chapter is about. Paul says, I have faith in God. Now, you get to the end of the chapter and you'll see how this ship eventually runs into a sandbar. And the ship begins to fall apart. But all of this happens near a tiny island called Malta. And because they're near that island, as the ship has fallen apart, all 276 passengers are able to jump ship. Those who are able to swim, it's not that far. They swim safely to the shore. And all those who don't know how to swim, God sees to it that a piece of the wreckage is nearby, big enough for them to lay on, and they can just float to the shore. Not one person is lost. Now, you need to appreciate how rare that was back in that first century world. Typically, that kind of stuff didn't happen. We know from verse nine, And how the Apostle Paul, or Luke, who's writing the book, how he dates this, that this all happened about the year 59 A.D., October, November of 59 A.D. Just to give you one example, four years later, 63 A.D., there's a, a Jew by the name of Josephus, and he's writing about one of his experiences when he went across the Mediterranean Sea. And on this occasion, he's in a much bigger ship, 600 passengers. They get out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. They encounter a storm. They, too, have to abandon ship. They, too, are swimming for their lives. But on that occasion, only 80 out of the 600 survived the catastrophe. And that was typical of what happened back then. For all 276 passengers to make it safely to the shore, that's no accident. This is the providence of God. God has been asked. God has been invited. A prayer has been made. And God got involved. And because he's managing the circumstances, everybody makes it safely. Now you come back to the statement that Paul makes in verse 25. I have faith in God. (laughs) Man, that's easy to say when you're healthy and strong. It's easy to say, I believe when you got more than enough money to pay all the bills. But can you still say, I believe when the doctor tells you that your six year old has a brain tumor? Can you still say, I believe, even when a tornado comes sweeping through town and destroys your house and everything in it? Can you still say, I believe? when you've gone through another job interview and there's still no callback. To me, what is so amazing about the scripture is this testimony that Paul gives. It comes at a moment of time when everything's going wrong. Nothing's going right. There's nothing in his circumstances to give him any reason for hope. And yet in the midst of this bleak, I mean very bleak situation, Paul is honestly able to say, but I have faith in God. How could he make a statement like that? He tells us how. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says, I know, I know whom I have believed. He trusts God because he knows God. Bruce Wilkinson tells about a day he took his boy to the park. He was just a preschooler at that time. His name was David. They got to the park, and the little guy, he was just fascinated with this big slide. I mean, from his perspective, it looked like that slide reached all the way up to the sky. It looked huge. But then the little boy noticed how all the older boys and girls were climbing the ladder and going down the slide, and they were laughing all the way. They just seemed to be having so much fun. And the little boy thought, well, I want to try this too. So the little guy begins to climb the ladder, and he gets about halfway up, and then he looks down, and that's when it hits him. He begins to realize how big Big! This slide really is. And then he gets scared and he freezes. He can't move. Well, all the older kids who are climbing up the ladder behind him, they're starting to holler at him, Come on, kid, get moving. But little David can't he can't budge. He's scared to death. Well, Bruce is standing off to the side visiting with some adults, and he hears all the kids hollering at his son. So he rushes over to see what the problem is. And he looks up there about halfway up the ladder. There's this little guy, his little son, his little boy just shaking like a leaf and clinging onto the bars like a pair of ice grips. Yes, David, are you OK? And the little boy looks down and says, Daddy, would you go down the slide with me? And Bruce asks him, why? He says, because, Daddy, it's too big for me. I can't do this without you. So Bruce immediately climbs up over all the other boys and girls, gets to where David is, carefully guides him to the top of the slide. Bruce sits down, puts his boy between his legs. He wraps his arms around him. And Bruce said, as soon as I put my arms around him, I could feel the fear just disappear. So he leans over and he says, are you ready? And little David smiles and says, yeah, Dad, let's do it. And they just went zipping down the slide, laughing and giggling all the way. Listen to me. Over the course of our lives, we're all going to encounter challenges. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you won't get cancer. Just because you're a christian doesn't mean you won't be in an accident or the victim of a crime we live in a bad world we live in a dangerous world troubles are sure to come our way but because we are christians here's what we do know: when we face something that's too big for us when we face something that's too scary for us we're not going down that slide alone we belong to the lord And when we're in his arms and when we're under his care, we know that we're going to make it safely through. So, do you know Jesus? I mean, know him well. Know him so well that even in the midst of the most horrible circumstances, you can still honestly say, But I have faith in God. Let's pray. God, let us see you. Let us see how great you are. Let us see how good you are. And encourage us, Lord, to put our trust in you. I ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Every Sunday morning, we pause for a time of communion. And we do this because Jesus asked us to. Jesus asked us to take time to remember him and why he died on the cross. So every Sunday morning, we take a piece of bread to remember his body and the sacrifice that he made for us. And every Sunday morning, we take a small cup of juice to remember the blood that he shed, how he literally laid down his life for us. And we eat the bread and drink the cup, remembering that he did all of this so he could be forgiven, so we could enjoy a new life with him. So every Sunday we pause and we just take time to think about Jesus and to think about how he has saved us. So this morning as we eat the bread and we drink the cup, let's honor the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the hope that he brings. Thank you, Lord, for this confidence, this certainty of knowing that we are forgiven. We belong to him. So God, use this moment and encourage us to draw near to you. And I pray for this in Jesus' name.